I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of a Top on the Wrist podcast. Woo! We are doing Writer's Choice this week, right? I think it is. It's episode... <laughs> yes, it we is. We hit record before it was full, fully processed, but I'm pretty sure we spun Writer's Choice for this episode. Yes, it is Writer's Choice. It's episode 88. Double digits. Getting close to 90. Which is close to 100. It is very close. <laughs> we're going to figure out, we're going to have to do something to celebrate the 100th episode for sure. Definitely. If you have ideas, send them our way. Oh, yeah. Top on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Yes. You know the email if you've listened before. If you haven't listened before, well, welcome. We're talk- yes, welcome. <laughs> and we're talking about that we spun Writer's Choice because this season we are doing a spin the bottle where we spin the bottle every week on like a wheel of topics and uh, let fate dictate what we're going to talk about. And this week it, it didn't. It told us that we had to decide what we wanted to talk about. It gave it us anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I literally said that after we spun it. I was like, oh my God, I have anxiety. What do I talk about? I don't know. What do I do? Um, and uh, I think we picked two pretty different stories for you to enjoy. Very different. But before we get to those. Um, we took last week off because it was Thanksgiving. We did. Did you do anything new and exciting for Thanksgiving? Uh, not really. No, it was just my parents and I. Uh, we made a lot of food, probably too much food for three people. Um, but it was delicious. And to yourself? Well, I was home. Yes. Which is rare. Mm-hmm. I normally don't fly home to Florida for Thanksgiving, but I was in Florida for Thanksgiving. Um, and it was just my parents and I as well. Mm-hmm. And I... Did you also make too much food? <laughs> yes and no. So... Without giving too much information, there was a 27-pound turkey purchase. <laughs> and then and then the Thanksgiving plans got altered and changed. Yes. And so then there were only three of us. Um, and so it was a very large turkey for three people. So my mom and stepdad are going to just have turkey forever. Yeah. They could, like, freeze some of it, I'm guessing. Well, yes. Yeah. Yes, they will. But... Um, so because it was just the three of us, I made my mom, like, pare down her menu because it was much larger. Mm-hmm. And then we went to, like, the essentials. Yeah. What are the essentials? Stuffing, cranberry sauce. Yeah. I Homemade stuffing, cranberry sauce, green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, gravy. And then I made, like, a cornbread stuffing because I wanted to try it. Mm-hmm. But, um, that was it. Oh, and Brussels sprouts. Out of a can. (laughs) Out of a can. Of course. Uh, We had this conversation right before we were recording. Um, I was saying that last year my mom and I made homemade cranberry sauce, and it just wasn't, it wasn't the same. Canned cranberry sauce is where it's at. And it has to be jellied. The jellied canned cranberry sauce. Ocean spray. Ocean spray brand. Fight me. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I saw, and I... Don't think I sent it to you, but I was going to. It was a recipe that used that cranberry sauce. Really? Like a cocktail recipe. 
Interesting. Yes. Color me intrigued. I know. I'll have to find it and send it to you. But I think it was like almost like a bourbon smash. Uh-huh. But instead of like fresh berries, it was like muddled cranberry. We should try it. Yeah, I'm not mad at that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've talked about this. Like, I feel like we need to normalize eating Thanksgiving foods at other times of year. Year round. Because I only have cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving. I only have green bean casserole at Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it's so easy to make. I have to, All I have to do is open a can and drop out some cranberry <laughs> sauce. And for some reason, I only have it once a year. I know. Crazy. Anyway, today is actually the day after Thanksgiving. Did you do any Black Friday shopping? Um, yes, but I did small business Black shopping. So tomorrow, Saturday, was or will be <laughs> Small Business Saturday. And our community that we live in is very close, and they do a whole small business weekend. Yes. So they started today on Friday. I hit up quite a few shops mm-hmm. um, with the goal of buying gifts for other people, but came home with a lot more gifts for myself. Uh, of course. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to hit up a couple more stores this weekend, and I just, I love that the community comes together. There's like this like passport, mm-hmm. and you get stamps at all the stores, yeah. and if you go to so many stores, you get like a swag bag. Yeah, but, uh, it's just, it's such a lovely community and a way to give back to, like, local businesses. So, I did shop on Black Friday, but not at major retail. I actually flew home from Florida this morning. So, <laughs> I flew home and then... And then got to shopping. Went shopping and now here we are. I did no Black Friday shopping, but I am going to do the small businesses this weekend, so, yeah. you know. I just, I don't, I don't know. I never really do Black Friday. It's not my it's not my jam. No, and I'm glad it seems like it's kind of losing its like power. Yeah. Like I don't think I know anyone that woke up at two AM to like go to Walmart today. Right. And like a lot of stores had started opening on Thanksgiving and thank God this year, like Target and some other I think Best Buy were like we are not opening on Thanksgiving. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Um and also today we actually watched Crime Con at home. Uh which is fitting because this is not a true crime episode, but we're going to be recording our true crime episode. Uh, so it just, it felt right. And it got me really hyped to go to crime con. Ow. <laughs> that was Laura's cat digging her nails into me. Um, it got me really hyped to go to crime con next year uh, in person in Las Vegas, which we'll obviously I'm sure share on the podcast once we go our experience. Yeah. I'm sure we will. <laughs> but this week, it's not true crime. No. It is writer's choice. We both chose different genres. Yes. And it is a great week to jump back in after our week off. And we hope you enjoy. Yes. And before we get to the stories, just a reminder that you can find pictures from said stories on our social media. Yes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Now you can listen and enjoy. Okay. If I walked into almost any bar today mm-hmm. and asked for a pickleback shot, I would look at you like you were crazy. <laughs> 
But the bartender would know what I wanted. Yes. Um, and Vanessa would look at me like I'm crazy because I don't really like pickles. <laughs> and it's a weird shot to order. Yeah, it but, would be an odd, odd choice for you. Uh, but, and like, it just seems so common practice. Like, I know pickleback shots exist on most menus. Most bartenders know them. Yeah. But... This shot has actually only been around for less than 15 years. 15? Yes. One five. One five. Seriously? Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like it's been around for as long as I've been drinking, but I guess that kind of makes sense, like, in terms of how many years I've been drinking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, today, I'm going to tell you the history of the pickleback shot. Can't wait. Yes. Now... For those of you that do not know what a pickleback shot is, it is traditionally one shot of whiskey chased down by a shot of pickle juice. I know. It's not my cup of tea. Um, And, but people love it. People say it's like heavenly. Other people kind of recoil the way Vanessa and I kind of do. Um, I don't think I've ever done one, honestly. Like, I, I've hear, heard people order them. I've seen people do them. Yeah. My next line that I wrote is, I'm definitely of the later, and I don't think I've ever actually had one. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't love pickles. I do Me like either. certain kinds of pickles, and I really have to be in the mood for them. I like fried pickles. I eat fried pickles, like, with some, like, um... Like aioli? Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. I like a fried pickle. I also am a fan of like bread and butter pickles, but only if they're really crunchy. Mm-hmm. Like I can't do like a pickle that's like soft, you know, and yeah, it doesn't yeah. have that snap. So I'm just not a big pickle person. Growing up though, my sister loved pickles. Like my mom would have to hide the pickle jar because my sister would drink the pickle juice. I know people who would drink pickle juice. Like, people love them. So I'm sure my sister has done a pickle back shot before. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but my guess is yes. Um, but since the history is not super old, I thought we'd talk a little bit about just shots in general, where the word comes from, and the origin of it. Um, and so in 2003, this internet meme kind of went all around it became super popular and it's the biggest kind of history that people claim as where the word shot comes from but it has since been debunked Mm. so go into it knowing this is not the truth but the myth is that in the old wild west a cartridge or bullet like a 45 bullet for a six gun would cost 12 cents which was the same as a glass of whiskey. So, like, a cowboy that was low on cash could pay for his whiskey with, like, a bullet or a shot. And that's how the nickname of a I shot. True. I know. And so this kind of went around in the early 2000s, and a lot of people still tell that story and share it, and it's what a lot of people believe is the origin of the word shot. But some internet sleuths were able to find that the oldest recorded reference of a shot, meaning a measure of liquor, um, was actually written in an autobiography of a Reverend Oliver Haywood, and he lived in like 1630 to 1702. 
irreverent. Yeah, and he was using it more as a measurement, like taking one sip, mm-hmm. but called it a shot, um, versus like the way we order shots at a bar today. But this not as cool. Not as cool. <laughs> no. Um, but way before our friends in the old Wild West, mm-hmm. exchanging bullets for whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, sh- the shot glass, like the actual device we all use to take those lovely shots, that origin is also kind of shady and unknown. Um, many people believe that it is credited to the glasswork creator um which it's like a a german scientist that created like thick glass that was pretty hard to break mm-hmm. and his name was the company's name is jenner glasswork shot and jenison but shot was spelled s c h o t t okay and people believe that when shot glass came to america Instead of keeping the, like, letters we didn't need, like the C and the extra T, America just kind of Americanized it into shot glass. As we do. Yeah, we butcher everything. (laughs) (laughs) But so they believe that that is how, like, the thicker rimmed shot glasses got their name is because they were originally made of the actual German shot glass. Okay. S-C-H-O-T-T. It's funny. I never thought of looking into the origin of shots because, as Laura knows, I'm really bad at taking shots. (laughs) In fact, I literally ruined my computer taking a shot. (laughs) I feel like we might have told this story, but we did a video for Hashtag History once, Mm -hmm. and we had to take a shot, and uh, Hashtag History is another podcast, and when I took it, I choked on it and spit it out all over my computer, so... And fried her computer. Fried my computer. Memories. Yeah, Vanessa's not big on shots. No. I mean, you will... I'll take them sometimes. Everyone's had, like... Yeah, and (laughs) you prefer not to be pressured into it. (laughs) And then the other widely believed uh, myth, if you will, of, like, where shot glasses got their name. And this is the one that, like, feels also correct to me (laughs) is that some believe it originated during pioneer days when a small glass was set on a dinner table for guests to place the buckshot when they found it in their food oh my god (laughs) so like (laughs) you're just eating your dinner stew and you take a bite down on the bullet that killed your dinner oh my god and you so put it, issues. yeah, and you put it like in this little glass for everyone to admire. Do you get like a wish, like if you get the wishbone? Yeah, I know. It's just such a weird tradition. Like you would think the bullet would be removed before cooking the animal. Yep. <laughs> what but, would think? What? But so that those are like where the term shot glass comes from. So, also while doing my research. On this article, I came across a fun fact because when you go to a bar and you order a shot, sometimes you're just wanting a shot of liquor, right? I want a shot of tequila. I want a shot of whiskey. And other times you're looking for that more fruity, 
like a lemon drop shot or a kamikaze shot. Um, And there's actually a difference between those. When you're ordering just spirits, it is called a shot. But when you're ordering the other kinds of shots, they're actually called shooters. Shut up. I know. I didn't know that. I know. I've heard the term shooter, but I like never knew what it was in reference to, you know? So a shot typically references a one and a half ounce pour of a spirit. Okay. So like... Any kind of cocktail you're making, you put a shot of whiskey in or a shot of rum. Right. It's a one and a half ounce pour. But then if you're ordering a shot at a bar, a shot of Jameson, a shot of Fireball, it should be a one and a half ounce pour of that spirit versus like a lemon drop shot. It's usually a three ounce because it's the the ounce and a half of the spirit uh-huh. and then the like flavored yeah. syrups and stuff. Next time I go to bar, I'm going to order a shooter. Drop shooter. There you go. Um, And so shooters came about in the 1970s, which we've referenced quite a few times as kind of like a, not a big error for cocktails here in America. It was really the heydays of beer. Yeah. And the reason also is because... (laughs) At the end of, like, the 50s and 60s, when cocktails were very big, like, our grandparents' generation, Uh our parents wanted to rebel. Like, it wasn't cool to drink high-end cocktails. So they took to more interesting vices, like recreational drugs, in, like, the 70s and 80s, which is when our parents were growing up. Mm -hmm. And then you see it kind of change. Like, our generation... I would say alcohol and cocktails are a bigger vice than recreational drugs. It's almost like every other generation switches because they don't want to do the same thing their parents do. Right. Like we brought craft cocktails back. Right. Even when I was younger, I feel like it was more trendy to get like a beer or like a simple cocktail like a cran vodka. Right. But now it's like, no, we want the fancy stuff. I want a, you know, elderflower. Yeah. You know, whatever. Infused old-fashioned or right. something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, if I can't pronounce half the ingredients, that's what I, I want. want. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so at that time in the 70s, the spirit companies were trying to get people back on alcohol. And that's how these super, like, fun, fruity-flavored shooters came to be. Um, to try and entice people to order them at bars. Uh, And by combining basic spirits like vodka and rum with syrups and sugar. So by, I don't know where it was. Like, I don't know where the ding was. It would have been like right before when, whatever line you said before, combining the... Okay, so this was an issue for spirit companies, and they really wanted to get people, like, not as used to recreational drugs and, like, back in the bar drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so by combining basic spirits with syrups and sugar, it masked the flavor of the alcohol, and then they would give all of these concoctions clever names, 
and liquor companies were kind of able to rebrand the drinking experience to make it new and fun and exciting. And when was this? Kind of like in the 70s and 80s? Yes. Um, so, I don't know, I mean, I guess, I, like, never really thought about the origin of where all of these cute names came from. I know there was a point in my life where, like, it was probably college, I would go to a bar and didn't really know what I wanted to drink or what I liked, and, like, drank ridiculous shooters, even though we called them shots. Right. But now that is not my... Go to. No, remember, was it that our our friend Teresa did at our party once? The Dirty Girl Scout? Yes. Look <laughs> <laughs> that up. Well, no, it's, I mean, I know what it is. It's like peppermint schnapps, right? And chocolate syrup. Oh, yeah. But you have to get on your knees. Yeah. And someone pours it into your mouth as opposed to doing it from a shot glass. Right. And then you just, like, shake it around and it tastes like a Thin Mint. I do love Thin Mints. And so, I don't know. For me, I'm not the hugest shot person. Uh, Typically, if I do a shot, it's a shot of whiskey. It's almost always Jameson if I'm taking a shot. Although, I could do Fireball. But all the people I work with, like when we go out for happy hour, they always want to do tequila shots. And that is not my favorite. That's not my thing. I mean, I like tequila. Honestly, it's probably one of the liquors that I'll have most often. But as a shot, yeah, it's not my thing. I'm more like if if I'm gonna do a shot and it's not a shooter, it's gonna be like a whiskey. Probably is what's easiest for me to do. Right. And what yeah. I'll enjoy most. I definitely get the peer pressure of a shot though. Like when you're out in a group and, and someone... everyone's doing one. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not, I used to be, like, five, six years ago, I was the one that was like, shots! <laughs> and now I'm like, ooh, that, I'm just going to get real drunk real quick. Yeah. But I will, like, if I go to a happy hour and I'm showing up late and everyone's already three drinks in, I'll take a shot with my first drink to kind of catch up. <laughs> no? No, I've never been like, I gotta catch up, let me get a shot in. Oh, wow. Be a teacher on a I Friday. Don't, <laughs> I don't know that I ever order. Sh- like, I think the only time I ever do shots is when someone else makes me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Peer pressure. <laughs> um, but I do love when it's someone's birthday and you're celebrating. I'll take a shot or your, you know, new job, like new job and we're cheersing, whatever. But I think as I get older, the less likely I am to just order a shot. However, we're going to bring it back to pickles. Pickles. So, in March 2006, a guy named Bob. uh, (laughs) Of course, this starts with a story about a guy named Bob. (laughs) Has resurrected his family's recipe for pickles. Um, Now, Bob lives in Brooklyn. Of course. Of course. Uh, He's an actor, and he... Always loved making pickles growing up with his parents and grandparents. And he just kind of had like a hankering for them. And he started giving them to friends. And it kind of became like a side hustle. (laughs) Bob just handing out his pickles to his buddies. (laughs) No, what can I say? Uh, And so 
knowing Brooklyn, I am imagining him, like, creating these pickles and, like, being at, like, fairs and, like, food festivals with his pickles, selling them. homemade pickles. Yeah. With his bushy beard. Slowly making a name for himself. However, that name is McClure's, which is a widely distributed pickle company now. How long ago was this? 2006. I know. It's, yeah, I, I even recognize the name, and I don't eat pickles. I know. Uh, and so Bob makes his pickles. And he, like I said, he's living in Brooklyn in an apartment. And as his, you know, pickles start to gain, you know, bigger distribution, um, he runs out of space in his apartment. He can't store all the pickles and pickle gear. Imagine a Brooklyn apartment just like pickles. <laughs> Everywhere, just jars of pickles covering every surface. <laughs> so he goes down to the bar downstairs, and it happens to be the Bushwick Country Club, as it's called. Of course, this is in Bushwick. <laughs> and he asks if he can store his pickles in their basement. <laughs> Excuse me. I really like to store my pickles in your basement. I don't know why this is so funny. <laughs> so, the owner of the Bushwick Country Club agrees. You know, I guess Bob was a regular friend, whatever the case may be. Right. Um, and in exchange for letting him store his pickles there, he kind of offered them, like, hey, if you guys ever want some pickles, like, you're doing Bloody Marys, you just want to, like, put them out, feel free to have some jars of them. No big deal. And so, one day, an unexpected thing happened. The current owner, whose name is John Roberts, says that a bartender working in 2006 named Reggie Cunningham was very hungover from his night of shenanigans the night before. And someone told him to go grab a jar of pickles and, like, eat a couple pickles. Is that a hangover cure? It is a hangover. I'm going to get to that in a second. But So he's behind the bar. He's eating some pickles, you know, working the day shift. Just behind the bar, eating some pickles. (laughs) And a woman comes in. And she orders a shot of Old Crow whiskey. And then she sees the pickle jar. And she's like, hey, can I have some of that pickle juice? Obviously a fan of pickle juice. Yeah. So he gives her some pickle juice. And she kind of accidentally chases her whiskey shot with this pickle juice. And, like, has this reaction. Like, wow, this is really interesting and different and I've never thought about it and she's like dude you have to try this so the bartender takes a shot of whiskey and takes a shot of pickle juice and he's amazed at how delicious it is and he's like this is crazy and he slowly like over the next couple weeks starts giving it to people to test and everyone loves it I feel like this woman deserves more credit. Yeah, no, they don't even know her name. Like, she was, like, she was just, like, a visiting, like, stopped in and left, and they never, like, they don't know who she is. The bartender gets all the credit. So Reggie Cunningham goes on to name the shot the pickleback and puts it on their menu. Interesting, okay. 
And apparently, even though Vanessa and I did not know this until this story, people have been drinking pickle juice for centuries as a hangover cure. Um, it apparently has, hold on, where, where did I write it? I wrote it somewhere else earlier, but I'm going to bring it up now. So pickle juice is commonly used as a hangover cure because the salty, like brine of the pickles replenish electrolytes and reduce cramping. Interesting. I know. I couldn't do it though. It would like make me throw off, I think. Yeah, it's not my thing. Excess of the pickleback grows at the Bushwick Country Club. As is natural, people go to other bars and start kind of ordering it in the area. And then it just kind of blew up Mm -hmm. here in New York. First in Brooklyn and then to other boroughs. Then people started writing articles about it. And then you would see it on menus everywhere. Um, It's so weird to me that it started in New York. I mean, I guess if anywhere, it makes sense in Brooklyn. But, like, I would think, like, I don't know why, like, in the South. I know. (laughs) And so, I mean, now picklebacks are even on menus, you know, across the United States, China, Amsterdam. Like, you can find a pickleback shot on menus across the world. Uh, The one difference is... Well, at Bushwick Country Club, it started as Old Crow Whiskey and McClure's Pickle Juice. Most bars do their own combo, depending on what they have. Um, And the most common used whiskey in a pickleback shot, do you want to guess what most bars pair it with? Jack Daniels? No. I'm just trying to think of like a common... I don't know. Jameson. Ew. I know. I don't know why that made it weirder. I know. I thought the same thing when I read this. Apparently, people really like the pickle juice with Jameson because it's the Jameson's a little sweeter than most whiskeys. So it's that sweet and sour combo. I that literally like I was like trying to think of whiskey names and I thought Jameson and I was like, nah, not that. So you get like the the sweet and not the sour. I like the salty sour. You know, like um, tart. Yeah. And so people love it with Jameson. A lot of bars serve it with Jameson. And I guess pickle juice is whatever the bar gets. Yeah, whatever pickles they got. a traditional pickleback should be Old Crow Whiskey and McClure's Pickle Juice. Okay. And so... I won't be trying it. Neither. (laughs) Um, But people seem to love it because if you're not a fan of shooting straight-up spirits... Apparently, the pickle kind of masks the whole alcohol if you chase it fast. It's, I mean, people chase shots all the time for yeah, that same yeah. reason. So the pickle juice just forms, it's just a stronger chaser than, say, a Coke or a Sprite or whatever people might use. And it masks the taste of the whiskey. Um, and people love the blend of the smooth and salty. Uh, and so that's the history of the, the pickleback shot. Never thought I would learn the history of a pickleback shot, but I'm so glad I did. I never thought I'd research it, but <laughs> here we are. Shout uh, out to Bob and that random woman. I know. <laughs> so my sources, um, I used an article on tastingtable.com called We're Bringing Pickles Back <laughs> by Allison Spiegel. Okay. An article on mentalfloss.com, A Brief History of the Pickleback Shot by Stephanie Vermillion. 
And then I also went to the McClure's website and got a little bit of that, like, family history. They now are no longer headquartered in Brooklyn. He's since moved to his home state of Detroit, where the giant headquarters of McClure's Pickles is. But they do keep a warehouse here in Brooklyn for distribution in the Northeast because it's where they were founded. Nice. That's our pickle story. So today the story that I'm telling is about our favorite time in history, Prohibition. <laughs> Yay! And I am honestly amazed that, like, we still find stories that took place in Prohibition. Because, I mean, I know it was many years across an entire country, but, like, I feel like we've talked about it so much that I'm like, how do I still find unique stories? I, you know, I think it's because there are so many untold stories that get uncovered, like, we yeah. all know and have learned for years those, like, famous ones, but there's so many tiny gems of people we didn't know. Yeah, totally. And this is one of those stories. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so, because we've talked about Prohibition a lot, we know that a lot of politicians and police officers, um, you know, and anyone enforcing the law were, were enforcing Prohibition were kind of drinking themselves. Like, of course. A lot of them were. I mean, I'm sure some of them weren't, but a lot of them were drinking themselves. But did you know that Congress actually had its very own bootleggers on staff? Nice. Because I sure did it. <laughs> I mean, I... No, I didn't know they had them on staff. <laughs> but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, there were legitimately congressional bootleggers, uh, and I'm going to tell you the story of the most well-known, or the chief bootlegger, if you will, will George Cassidy, uh, a.k.a. the man in the green hat. Ooh. And I feel like I had heard that term before, but I didn't know where, but the man in the green hat sounds familiar. Sounds like a movie title. Maybe I'd seen it somewhere researching. Or yeah, maybe there is a movie. I should have looked it up. Okay, so I couldn't find a lot about his early life, but George was born on April 12th of 1892 in Wheeling, West Virginia, to what Wikipedia said was a Methodist and a Women's Christian Temperance Union supporting family, which seems ironic considering his later career. Right. <laughs> uh, George fought and served as a tank crew member in World War One. Uh, and after the war, he created the Irish War Veterans Association. However, upon coming home from the war, he found himself unemployed and in desperate need of a way to support his family. And so at the suggestion of a friend, George found himself getting involved in the wonderful world of bootlegging. As you do in that time period. <laughs> we need a job. There were plenty of opportunities. <laughs> Um, and this friend didn't recommend just any kind of bootlegging. He told George that alcohol brought a better price on Capitol Hill, more so than anywhere else in town. I'm sure it did. Yep. Uh, an author named Garrett Peck wrote in his book, Prohibition in Washington, D.C., How Dry We Weren't. <laughs> Quote, that friend introduced him to two Southern congressmen, both of whom had voted for the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act and he agreed to procure for them a supply of liquor. Those bastards. It sounds a lot like Congress today. So hypocritical. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to get into it, but like, 
how many abortions have they paid for? I know. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> um, so after that first sale, word spread about Georgia's service and more congressmen wanted in. Uh, apparently at first he would bring bottles of alcohol to the politicians by hiding the bottles of booze in his coat. Uh, in a YouTube video I watched, they noted that people wouldn't be searched going into the office buildings, only when they left, which seemed odd to me, but apparently that's because we're used to um, horrible things happening, and back then they were more concerned with theft than, like, terrorism or shooting. Right. Simpler times. Simpler, well, simpler and not simpler at the same time. Um, but yes, they, they were, he was easily, him and, and the other congressional bootleggers were easy, it was easy for them to sneak booze in because they wouldn't be checked. Right. And congressmen were not checked on their way out. That was one of their privileges. Even though everyone else got checked on their way out, they weren't. So while it was easy for George to bring the booze in, it was easy for the congressmen to then bring the booze out because they were the only ones not being searched. And as word of mouth continued to spread about George, his clientele grew to include hundreds of lawmakers. <laughs> Eventually, because he was so popular, one congressman, who remained unnamed, suggested that George should start to bring in larger quantities of alcohol. And because this was kind of risky, because if he was like bringing giant things of alcohol, obviously couldn't hide them as well. Uh, so they decided to give him his own office. Oh. Yeah. So George was given the keys to a private storeroom located in the basement of the Cannon Hall office sorry, Cannon House office building, so the office building for the house, uh, in order to conduct his business. He worked there from 1920 through 1925. He'd get there at 9 a.m. when they first opened and would work well in, along in the evening. During his time there, he estimated that he delivered approximately 25 orders on an average day. And according to the Washington Post, quote, Cassidy got the booze from New York City and later Philadelphia, taking the train north and returning with two suitcases, groaning under the weight of 40 quarts of alcohol. And again, because no one was searching going into the building, he walked in with two suitcases, no one the wiser. And when he left, the suitcases were checked, but they'd be empty. The booze would either be with congressmen or in his office in the building. So that's crazy. Yep. That, like, he'd walk out with two suitcases and no one ever thought to question, like, that two empty like, suitcases every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, here he is with the suitcases again. I guess he has an attachment <laughs> issue. <laughs> At least fill them with, like, fake clothes. I like, know. I mean, he did. I don't know. But it's said empty. <laughs> it's so random. Um, I do also want to know that... There was an article that said when his sources dried up, George did make his own alcohol. Uh, he It said he combined a gallon of rye, grain alcohol, and hot water, plus a few drops of coloring. And he was quoted as saying, if they got a kick out of it with no bad side effects, they were well satisfied. Oh my, it's so dangerous. Like, like homebrewing of Prohibition era. And, and giving it to congressmen. <laughs> um... Unfortunately, despite all of his connections, George Cassidy was arrested in 1925 by a Capitol Police officer. Uh, he had believed that this officer had been sympathetic, but turns out he was wrong. 
Uh, the officer caught him delivering six quarts of whiskey to a house member. And this event is actually where he gets the moniker of the man in the green hat. Because apparently, while he's making his delivery, he was wearing a green felt fedora. So classy. Um, can I be George Cassidy for Halloween <laughs> next year? Just wear a green felt fedora and a nice suit. And I'm like, I'm George Cassidy. The <laughs> man in the green hat. <laughs> Um, and because there were reporters around, because, you know, D.C., and there are always reporters probably around government property, uh, in a couple of places I saw it was either a a reporter themselves or the house sergeant at arms, while pointing him out to other reporters, referred to him as the man in the green hat. They were like, oh, look at the man in the green hat over there getting arrested, and all the reporters like put that in their article and it just kind of stuck. There and are worse nicknames for Prohibition. I actually feel like it's kind of cool. Like it kind of sounds mysterious, the man in the green hat. I'm telling you, it's my Halloween costume <laughs> next year. <laughs> Planning a year ahead of time. Um, and while George did get off of this initial charge pretty easily, he was banned from the house office building. And so still needing the money, he just made the switch to the Senate. (laughs) I knew that's how that sentence was going to (laughs) end. He's just like, let me just go on over to these There's fewer patrons in that building. Yes. Uh, So he moved on into the Russell Senate office building uh, where he was given an office once again that he would have from 1925 to 1930. George would later say that senators were more discreet than the members of the House and noted that they tended to send their secretaries for their alcohol instead of picking it up themselves, you know. I want to interview one of those secretaries. (laughs) Can you imagine? That'd be such a cool interview. The secrets they might have? Yeah. That'd be insane. Like, besides just picking up their boot, can you imagine what else they had to hide? Insane. I'm sure that there are still many stories that current secretaries can oh yeah yeah i'm sure but like someone has to have like their grandmother's journal yeah right if you do tap on their podcast (laughs) (laughs) please share so i did find the story of one senator again unnamed but he apparently referred to george cassidy as the librarian because he would keep his illegal alcohol on top of his bookshelf apparently next to the volumes of the congressional record. Uh, and whenever he was running low and needed a new order, he'd simply tell George that he needed more reading material. And this is a little code. Wink, wink. That's amazing. <laughs> because we, like, I, I don't, I guess I haven't heard anyone say it maybe this year. This is pre-COVID. But, like, if teachers were going to happy hour... We obviously couldn't walk around the halls being like, who's going to happy hour? (laughs) Who's going to get drunk? (laughs) (laughs) So we'd be like, "Uh, are you going to tutoring after school? Like, we would always just, like, talk about it in terms of that. And, like, on a Friday, you'd be like, no, I'm not going to tutoring. (laughs) Kids would be like, you tutor on a, I don't know. So code words. Yeah. Um. I also feel like George Cassidy had such, like, classy nicknames, like the man in the green hat and the librarian. I know. So alluring. I know. 
Um, so, although things ran smoothly for another five years, George's bootlegging would once again catch up with him in 1930. The year before, in November of 1929, word of Cassidy's bootlegging activities had actually led to a police raid on his home. There, officers seized 266 quarts of premium liquor, uh, and I guess he wasn't arrested, but it led to Vice President Charles Curtis authorizing a sting operation on him. <laughs> the sting involves a young undercover Prohibition Bureau agent named Roger Butts. <laughs> I'm so immature. Every time I read the name, I laughed. Um, who was assigned to the Russell Building's basement stationary room. This room is apparently where Cassie would often stop during his Senate rounds to use the phone to contact his clients. However, George did become suspicious of Butts <laughs> and would refer to him as the dry spy. But despite George's suspicions of Butts, he was still able to entrap him. On February 18th of 1930, Butts arranged for another Senate employee to set up a delivery of booze from George, to set up a delivery of booze from George in the Senator's parking lot. There, Prohibition agents nabbed him with his six bottles of gin, uh, like make, actually like making a sale, mm -hmm. uh, and he wouldn't be able to get off as easily as he had before. So... This time, when he was arrested, he was forced to give up his client book. Not that anything happened to the senators, I'm obviously. Sure. Uh, and he was convicted of a felony and sentenced to 18 months in jail. However, he didn't really serve his time there, I guess because of his connections. All George had to do was go to jail every morning and sign himself in. And then later in the day, at the end of the day, he'd sign himself out and he'd get to go home and sleep in the comfort of his own bed. What kind of jail <laughs> program? That sounds like work. Like, yeah, yeah, it does. Like, you just go sign in for the day. Like, I'm just going to start referring to my job as jail. Like, <laughs> I go, I clock in, do my hours, clock out, come home. So random. That's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... I feel like there were so many people during Prohibition that had, like, these weird, like, special jail sentences, yeah. you know, like, in the Al Capone season, I feel like we talk so much about people that, like, either had a super cushy setup or, like, got to do weird shit like this and just, like, leave for the night. I mean, I'm sure things like that happen today, too, if you know the right people and have the right money. Yeah. Although, I don't know, because I feel like it would get so much more publicized, like, if someone was signing into jail and leaving every day. I mean, I know there are programs like that where you, like, sign in on Fridays and sign out on Sundays. Really? Yeah. Interesting. But it's for, like, minor offenses, mm -hmm. right? And you just yeah. have to serve so many days. or Like, I do know that there are programs like that. Interesting. I guess I never But it's not that. usually for felony charges. <laughs> <laughs> Always, I feel like mm -hmm. selling booze isn't that serious. Let's be real. I mean, I know it was against the law, but... Mm -hmm. They're much worse crimes. Like murder? Like murder. Um, I actually almost did a true crime story this week, and I was like, nah, we did true crime last week. I gotta, I gotta do something different. Anyway, back to George. Uh, he would sign himself in and out of jail, and 
this was for about a year. I mean, he was sentenced to 18 months. Uh, but during this time, he wrote a series of articles in the Washington Post called The Man in the Green Hat series. And this is really the only reason why we know his story, because otherwise it would have all been swept under the rug, like we wouldn't have known anything about him. Um, so I did call him the chief bootlegger, but I guess we don't really know because I'm sure most of those other people just never had their identity revealed. Um, but in this series for the Washington Post, he shared his story as a bootlegger and outlined all the details of his operation. The articles ran from October 24th to October 29th of 1930, uh, and he never revealed the name of any of his congressional customers, but he estimated that he sold alcohol to about two-thirds of the members of Congress. Well, he also estimated that about 80% were drinkers because he said he wasn't the only congressional bootlegger, and so some people were not getting them from him, but from other sources. Wow. Um... I mean, it doesn't really surprise me, though. It doesn't that surprise me. That majority of Congress was drinking. I know. It just, it's, like, so unfair. Like, so hypocritical. I know. I mean, again, we could I make know. comparisons to today, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Cassie wrote in one of the articles, quote, As the result of my experience on Capitol Hill since Prohibition went into effect, I would say that four out of five senators and congressmen consume liquor either at their offices or their homes. Which the one, like, at their offices seems even, like, more, like, shady to me. Like, he doesn't want his family to realize that he's still drinking booze, so he's just going to drink in his office. Yeah. I, I hate them. <laughs> just all the collective then. <laughs> Um, after this final arrest and at the end of the publication of his articles, George did declare that he was giving up bootlegging for good. Uh, he did take full responsibility for his actions, but said that Congress was likewise culpable, which is true. Mm -hmm. He wrote, quote, considering that I took the risk and did the legwork from 1920 to 1930, I am more than willing to let the pu general public decide how I stack up with the senator or representative who ordered the stuff and consumed it on the premises or transported it to his home. Agreed. Yeah. You tell him, George. <laughs> um, the last of George's articles ran one week before the midterm elections, and it's believed that his articles helped influence voters who finally got to see the widespread hypocrisy that they kind of long suspected, but until then hadn't seen like documented. Um, basically vote the quote dry Republicans out. Um, God, I wish something like that would happen now. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, no politics. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was just like kind of a, like another shot on the camel's back, right? Like people were just over prohibition at this point. It was 1930. We know, you know, from talking about it many times, people were starting to itch for a repeal because it, all the, all it the wasn't working, and it just wasn't working. Yeah. Um. So George's exposés not only went on to contribute to be a contributing factor to, again, the dry Republican defeat uh, in the 1930 midterm elections, but it was also a stepping stone that led to the eventual repeal of prohibition completely, uh, especially because the wet Democratic majority supported it. 
I never heard I, like in all my research I never looked saw dry Republicans and wet Democrats said so many times yeah <laughs> it was so weird um and in a video I watched his son said quote who's still alive uh I think he would actually feel proud and tickled to see his name being talked about that he's getting some kind of recognition for doing something that may have been pretty good you know if he had even the smallest, a little bit of getting prohibition repealed, then I'm very proud. Uh, and he did. He did have an influence. Cassidy went on to live a normal life and disappear from the public eye. He worked at a shoe factory and in several hotels in the Washington area. He passed away on January 21st of 1967 at the age of 74. And unfortunately, his second wife destroyed the black book that he still had uh, where he had kept track of his customers and their purchases. What the hell, woman? I know. I was like, can you imagine how interesting that would be? Like, obviously, none of those politicians were still serving. Like, it was so many years later. Why would she destroy it? I think it would have been so fascinating. Publish that shit. Right? Again, they probably weren't still currently in the public, like... A politician, so like, I don't know, but I mean, maybe maybe he wanted her to. Maybe it was like a request of his. But like, why why keep it for all those years then? Right. I don't know. Anyway, George Cassidy's story and his love of booze. Although I wrote I wrote this love of booze, but then I I went back and read that he actually preferred beer. He didn't really drink food uh, liquor. Uh, but his story went on to be immortalized by a DC based distillery. Uh, called New Columbia Distillers in 2012. Uh, and this is actually why his son says that he would feel proud and tickled to see his name being talked about because it was in reference to this brand coming out. Um, it is owned and operated by retired lawyer Michael Lowe and his son-in-law, John Usselton. Uh, and it was DC's first micro distillery and DC's first distillery since Prohibition. In 2012, which I feel like there was another, we said something else, another state where like it was very recent that the first. I mean, New York. Was had, it New York yeah. maybe? Yeah. And I was like, what? It yeah. just seems so crazy to me. I know. Um, I guess most of the distilleries were like in the Kentucky. Yeah. You know, like the bourbon. Well, area. like it really was like the 2000s when micro distilleries came to be. Yeah. So that's why they're all so much younger yeah um but so they they started this distillery and in a nod to zc's past they called their inaugural spirit green hat gin uh they had found george cassidy's story and decided to name his product after him but they first cleared it with his son fred cassidy and he said i was thrilled to death i think dad would be thrilled too he used to take a lot of pride in telling us kids about what a big shot he was. And of course, nobody paid any attention to him except when he got to a juicy part. And so he is honored now by having... And it's actually, you should go to their website. It's very cute the way they have the the like part about George Cassidy set up. It's kind of like this cartoon image, almost like a one of those like books you would get as a kid where you like how to find stuff in the image and you have to like find things and click on them to get little facts about him 
very cute website highly recommend and I love that on the website it says 677 people have served in both the House and Senate 678 if you count the man in the green hat nice very cute uh, and that is the story of George Cassidy so my sources for the story were First, an article called Bootlegger in Congress, The Man in the Green Hat, George Cassidy, from alcoholproblemsandsolutions.org. Uh, another article called The Untold Story of Congress's Infamous Prohibition-Busting Bootlegger by Ashley Hughes from vinepair.com. A New Green Hat in Town, DC's First Microdistillery by Kathleen Bridges from Washingtonian, Washingtonian.com? Washingtonian.com. Uh, I also use senate.gov, which had information about him, uh, which I thought was a little weird that they, <laughs> they didn't get to their dubious past. Um, and then the YouTube video that I mentioned a couple times was called Meet Congress's Favorite Bootlegger, Prohibition, Hypocrisy, and the Man in the Green Hat by Reason TV. And of course, a little bit of Wikipedia. Always. <laughs> Always. It's Especially when you're doing biographies, it's just like quick facts that yeah. you can get from there. But uh, yeah. That's the man in the green hat, a.k.a. Laura's future Halloween costume. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, now it is that time to talk about a bar of the week. And this week we've chosen a bar that we've both been to, but not together. Yes. It's a place that I go to a lot that I get takeout from a lot. Um it's called Blend. There's actually a couple of different locations. There's one in Astoria, and then there's another. It's Blend Astoria and Blend's Long Island City, or Blend on the Water. I think there's three, actually. Yeah, and there's one, yeah. And um, their thing is that they are a blend of different types of Latin food. So I think there's, like, some Cuban, Puerto Rican, like, different types of Latin food. Yeah, and their menu is quite diverse. Their yeah. food menu and then... Their drink menu, too, it kind of is, like, the best of all of those worlds, yeah. right? Like, they make amazing mojitos, amazing margaritas. Sangria. Yeah. Um, what is the Brazilian, I always pronounce it wrong, like a caparina? Is that how you say it? I don't know. It's very much like a mojito, but it's, like, the Brazilian version. Okay. But... They make those as well. And then they make them on the rocks, or they make them frozen, they mm -hmm. make them flavored, they make them traditional. Yeah, totally. And uh, again, I order from there a lot because their food is delicious, and it is very, very varied. Very varied. I think the cocktails that I've had when I've gone have definitely, I've definitely had mojitos. Um, I've had their sang white sangria as well, because I'm allergic to red wine. <laughs> so I can only do white sangria, but they've always been super delicious. I know you, Laura, had, I don't know if I have pictures. I have to go through. Laura has a couple of pictures of some of the cocktails that she's had. Yes. They make a coconut mojito that is delicious. <laughs> like, basically, if you can make any drink and add coconut to it, mm -hmm. I'm going to order it. Yeah. And I actually haven't been to all of the locations. I'm sure the one on the water is beautiful. Um, the one that I go to in Astoria is really cute. They have actually really cute outdoor seating. I mean, the restaurant inside is nice, and it's actually deceptively big. 
Have, yeah. have you eaten inside? Yes. And, like, it goes so far back. It looks like it's small up front. But the outdoor seating is so cute. They have, like, plant life, like, a lot of plant life. It almost, like, looks like you're not in Astoria, um, which I really appreciate. And I think they have, like, live music on some nights. Great brunch on the weekends. Great brunch. Uh, just all around, like, a really fun atmosphere like the food is actually affordable the drinks are affordable i guess new york affordable we should clarify and it's just it's fun it's a fun place to go like we say every week add it to your list if you're coming to new york yeah especially if you're coming to queens because that's where i think 80 percent of our recommendations (laughs) are i feel like the that really is because of the pandemic yes once things kind of calm down and I mean, normal life has resumed, but I still think, like, you're still working from home. So, like, we're not going to meet in Midtown after work. If we're going out together, which I feel like we don't really do unless we have, like, an engagement, like, an event. Just because we're both so busy. But, like, you would be coming home. I would come home to Astoria and park my car and then get on the subway and go into Midtown and meet you after work a lot of times. Right. But now that you're still working from home in Astoria, I'm just driving home. And we're just meeting in Astoria. Right. We're not leaving this borough. No, no. And, I mean, Queens is, like, known for having, like, a lot of diverse food. And um, so it's like, why would you need to leave? (laughs) So, I'm sorry if you don't live here and all of our bar recommendations don't apply to you, but that's just the way it is. Yep. This is our experience. (laughs) We don't leave Queens. (laughs) (laughs) But if you are interested in seeing any pictures from Blend or from our episode in general, please give us a follow on social media. Yes, we are on Twitter and Instagram at a tap on the wrist. And you can also email us your bar suggestions and maybe we can talk about them on air, even if we haven't been there. If you supply some pictures, you can yeah. email us at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And uh, also, please rate, review, and subscribe. It's really helpful for our podcast. I think, especially if you have Apple Podcast. Uh, sorry, Android users. We appreciate your listens as well. Agreed. And that's all we've got for you. Until next week. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.